Let's get into God's word this morning. Um, Open up to Psalm 81. Psalm 81 with me. As you turn there, let me pray for us and we'll, uh, we'll get into it. Father, thank you. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us and spoken to us through your scriptures. Thank you for what you are doing, not only with Grafted, but with Park Community and in our individual lives. Lord, I ask that uh, as we, we dive into the scriptures now, that you would be glorified, that this would be a time that uh, would point us to you, that we would gain a passion and a heart and a burden for the things of your kingdom. And Lord, I pray for clarity as we sort in this, uh, that, that, we would be, uh, that we would see you, that you would be magnified in a way that brings you greater honor and that we would be encouraged to share about your wonder to the people around us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to start out this morning uh, with a little bit uh, of confession. Uh, Real talk, I have not always been the bastion of holiness and wisdom. In all honesty, I'm still not the bastion of holiness and wisdom. But by God's grace, I've been able to see myself grow. And maybe you've seen that happen in your own life. But if you're close to me, and some of the people in this room and and that come to park in general have known me for a decade or more, if you know me well, then you realize that I'm still a work in progress. It's funny that when you get close to people, you realize more and more how much of a work in progress they are. But if you met me in my college days, some of you uh, may not have recognized me. Some of those years are the ones that I affectionately refer to as the quote-unquote dark ages. Those are the times where the Lord was doing something in my life, and yet there were a lot of areas in my life that were not congruent with one who would profess to have faith in Jesus. Some of my actions were foolish and sinful. Some of the things that I said were outrageous. It actually got to the point where I, I had some friends who created a Facebook group to record the outrageous things that I said so they could look back at them and laugh at me. I'm not going to tell you the group. It's still up. I need to have them take it down. But it, it's, it's a place of, uh, you might say, a, a little bit of shame, a little bit of wounding for me as I, I look back at the consequences of some of that. But even in the midst of that, that was a season where the Lord was drawing me. And that was a season where he was extending grace to me. And it was a a place where he saved me, and yet I was still in progress. The progress that is still going on in my own life. But as you'd expect during those dark ages, uh, my parents were not thrilled, right? They send me off to college like, hey, here's these huge aspirations for my son to be a doctor. And I'm making these dumb decisions, and I now have a Facebook group about me, right? So they weren't happy about this. And my mom would say this to me. She would say, Matt, when are you going to turn the corner? That's what she would say to me over and over. And we would talk on the phone. They're down in Florida, so it was kind of from a distance. And what she meant by that is, when am I going to get my priorities straight? When am I going to actually sort through the things of my life that actually matter and start taking responsibility and growing and all of these things? She saw that I had this great opportunity in front of me. And the reality was, is that I really wasn't taking advantage of it. And what she was hoping for was this kind of breakthrough moment in my life. Maybe some of you have those dark ages in your life. If you live long enough, I suspect that you probably do. And if you haven't, 
then praise God for that. Praise God for the fact that he has protected you from that. But the reality is, is if we live long enough, we're going to have, irrespective if they're good or bad, we're going to have moments of opportunity in our life. Moments where we are forced to make a choice. Maybe it's a relational opportunity. You meet somebody new, right? And you're trying to figure this out. You, you come into a new community. You're trying to navigate how to connect with them. Maybe it's a, a, a financial opportunity. You kind of have this influx of money. How am I going to steward that well? How am I going to spend that? Maybe it's vocational opportunity. You start a new job or you get promoted or, or whatever it is. Maybe it's a, an educational one, right? We have some students in this room, some college, some high school, some, some others. The reality is, is at going to school in is, is in and of itself an opportunity. But whatever it is, we all have opportunities in our life that if we go about it right, then it could lead to breakthrough. It's a crossroads, or if we take advantage of it, it could really result in a lot of blessing. The Lord could use it for a lot of good. But with the opportunity also comes the opportunity to fail. The opportunity where, where we can forfeit what could be a wonderful moment. As we look at Psalm 81, I think many of us in this room realize that the nation of Israel has a really long and bumpy history with God. It was a history that began when they were at Mount Sinai with the Lord, and he called them to be his people. He said they were going to be his portion, his special possession, and yet with that came expectations, that if they were going to be everything that God had called them to be, then they had to obey. They had to step into it. There's actual a conditional clause in Exodus 19. If you will obey me, then you will be my special possession, holy people, so on and so forth. But as we read through the scriptures, we find that there's this kind of radical downward turn. Things go down pretty quick. Within 10 chapters, they're making a golden calf of that moment at Sinai, and it doesn't get better. It gets all the more complicated. They end up going into civil war. They end up being exiled. They end up losing their temple. And before you know it, they're like, how did we actually get here? There are people that are living in a foreign land who have lost seemingly everything. And yet they hold out hope. They hold out hope that God is still doing something and that his mercy is enough. And that one day he will call them back to himself. In the psalm this morning, we're going to look back at this group in exile. We're going to look back with them at their own history. And we're going to see that God does still want them. He still wants them to come to repentance. But there is a clear reminder that if they're going to experience all of the blessings that God has for them, then there are some stipulations, you might say. There are expectations that exist just like we have expectations in any relationship, and the Lord invites them to finally turn the corner, to wake up, to express loyalty. The question is, will they take advantage of it? The Lord is telling them in this psalm, I have turned to you, will you turn back to me? And if they do, then there is abundance to be found. So I think there's a lot that we can glean this morning, although being a little culturally removed from the exile, there's a lot that we can glean about what it means to experience abundant life in God. So, so let's look at the text. We're going to navigate it a little uh, interestingly. We're going to walk through the text overall, looking at what it says, and then we'll consider what it has for them. And then we're going to look at it overall in what it has for us this morning. So would you stand with me in honor of God's word? We're going to start with the first five verses of Psalm 81. 
The subtitle to this is to the choir master according to the gittith of Asaf. Here's what it says. First five verses. Sing aloud to God our strength. Shout for joy to the God of Jacob. Raise a song. Sound the tambourine, the sweet lyre with the harp. Blow the trumpet at the new moon, at the full moon on our feast day. For it is a statute for Israel, a rule of the God of Jacob. He made it a decree in Joseph when he went out over the land of Egypt. Go ahead and have a seat. So the early part of our text this morning, it exists as something that we're, as something that we're familiar with. If you've been coming to church, it exists as what we call a, a call to worship. This is often built into the liturgy, even here at Park, that we begin the service with setting our sights upon the one whom we are worshiping. Except for here in the text, it seems to imply that this is not just any worship gathering. This is not just any moment in the history of God's people. When it talks about uh, the full moon, our feast day, the new moon, what it seems to imply is this is most likely one of the holiest times in the year of Israel, one of the feasts, as we might call it, in our modern day. So it might be the, the feast of trumpets. So this is ending the agricultural year, celebrating the year for what God had provided. Uh, maybe it's tabernacles where they're remembering their time in the wilderness or in between those is Yom Kippur or the Day of Atonement, this time of reckoning before God. Either way, it is an important time for them. And the section sets us up as we remember what is important to remember one of the most important moments in the history of Israel, the moment of the Exodus. And here's how it describes it. I relieved your shoulder of the burden. Verse six, your hands were freed from the basket. In distress, you called and I delivered you. I, I answered you in the secret place of thunder. I tested you at the waters of Meribah. Here, O oh my people, will I admonish you. O oh Israel, if you would but listen to me. Just consider what's being said here. There shall be no strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide, and I will fill it. If you've been reading the Bible for any period of time, then one of the things that will start to stand out to you is that the, the exodus is a very significant event. And it becomes a category which gets reused over and over to describe God's redemption for his people. When God's people in the Hebrew Bible look back at a defining moment for them, the exodus is it. In the same way that we as new covenant believers look back and say, okay, where did God redeem us the most? We look back to the cross of Jesus, the greater Exodus event. Prior to Jesus coming, if you were a Jewish individual, where did you look? You looked back to Egypt. You looked back to the Exodus. It was the place where you remembered that you were liberated, that God had set you free from your oppression. It was the place where you remembered that you were indeed loved and that you were not forgotten and that the Lord had reached down with a mighty hand in order to save you. And it was the place where the Lord reminded them that he didn't just save them into nothing, but he saved them into a relationship. He wanted to know them and he wanted them to know him. If you're an ancient Israelite, this is ground zero for your identity. But the Exodus was not just a moment where they learned about who they were. It was one of the primary places where they learned about who God was. The Exodus event was a revelation of God's character. 
that he, indeed he was relational, that he wanted to be with them when he came down on Sinai, that he wanted to be faithful to them when he called them into covenant relationship, that he was powerful, that he indeed actually could save them, and that he cared for them, that he was willing to be merciful to them even in their brokenness. The Exodus is not just a cataclysmic event. The Exodus was what revealed God's character to his people, Israel. And as they left Egypt, and as they arrived at Mount Sinai, the Lord made it clear that he wanted to bless them, that his intentions for them were greater than they could ever have dreamed of. But here was the issue, that the relationship had expectations that he wanted them to be loyal to him as the king. In other words, their belief in him needed to result in action that reflected that belief. When we look through the scriptures, anytime there's this idea of belief, or Andrew's been talking about this in, in our previous sermon series on John, this idea of pistis, entrusting oneself, it always implies this idea that if you truly and genuinely believe, then you will act in accordance with that belief, even if it isn't always with perfect congruence, but you will strive to act in accordance with that, and that was a challenge for Israel. And we see this alluded to in verses 9 and 10, that there were indeed expectations. There shall not be any strange God among you. You shall not bow down to a foreign God. If you look at the screen, this is Exodus chapter 20, right at the beginning of the Ten Commandments. Our psalm in verse 10 echoes this today. I am the Lord your God who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. What you see is there's this header over all of the action that God is the one who they're called into relationship with. Therefore, you do X, Y, and Z. And they were excited about this. Before they even actually knew what the expectations were, if you read Exodus, they were in. He said, I'm calling you in to, to this relationship with me. And they're like, yes, we'll do it. We're in for all of it. And then he gives them all the stipulations. And they say they're in, but then we find out that they're not really in, if you catch my drift. But as freaked out as they were that God was descending on Mount Sinai, they thought that they were ready for what lied ahead in this amazing moment of abundance and and of blessing. But that's just part of the history of Israel. What we find is a much more complicated scenario. We find what actually happened after the Exodus event. Look at verses 11 and 12. But my people did not listen to my voice. Israel would not submit to me. So I gave them over to their stubborn hearts to follow their own counsel. We find this moment of amazing promise, but it did not go as hoped. Despite what God had for them, or for, for Israel, Israel ended up rejecting him as king. Later on, we find, they say, give us a king like the other nations. This group that was super fast, to accept the covenant was about equally as fast to reject it. Maybe you feel that way. I feel that way sometimes in my own life or like start my day and I'm like, Lord, I want to follow you today. I want to step into whatever it is you have for me. And I like walk out the door and before I know it, I'm already starting to stray. It's a very complicated thing to walk with the Lord. And we see that played out in Israel's life. But what was scariest for them is this thing that happened, what we see in verse 12, something that actually the apostle Paul describes in Romans chapter one, that the Lord honored their decision to disobey. 
that he gave them over, as the book of Romans would say, which led to disaster. It was the undoing of them. Just like Romans 1 describes for those who would reject Jesus, the Lord honors that decision, and it ends up in this just unraveling. But that's actually not where the text ends. It ends in a lot more hopeful of a place. Look at the last four verses, verse 13 with me. Oh, that my people would listen to me, that Israel would walk—excuse uh, me—that Israel would walk in my ways. I would soon subdue their enemies and turn my hand against their foes. Those who hate the Lord would cringe toward Him, and their fate would last forever. But He, the Lord, would feed you with the finest of wheat and with honey from the rock. The Lord says, "I would satisfy you. I would." satisfy you. It's a big moment. The the text is really clear that although Israel has a track record, it doesn't need to be the thing that, that marks the rest of their life. There is punishment and there is consequence for their sin. But what I think we need to realize about the Lord's discipline and about consequence for sin is it's not just an, a matter of justice, but oftentimes the consequences for our sin are also an expression of God's mercy because they are a red flag to us that says, wake up, wake up. I'm calling you back into something. And this is exactly what the Lord is trying to do for Israel here. He not only wants to judge them because he is just, but he wants to extend his mercy now. He wants to bless them abundantly. And what the end of Psalm 81 makes clear is that he is yearning for them. He's saying, please come back to me. I want you. I want this relationship that I initiated at Sinai. I meant it when I said I wanted you to be my treasured possession. This is a very big deal for them. So let's kind of review the outline of Psalm 81 here. So we start with a call to worship in a special season. And then there's this recalling of what the Lord did for them in Egypt and then at Sinai. And as a result, they are reminded of their disobedience, which is why they are in exile. But we finish with the Lord's deep desire for them to return so that he could bless them. Are you tracking? That's how Psalm 81 flows. It's really important that we get our minds around us. It is this moment of remembrance built into a text. It is just full of potential for God's people if only they would turn back to him. Let's ask ourselves if you're sitting in exile, an Israelite, and you're thinking about this, how would you respond? How would you feel? Because remember, the stuff that's being described in the text is not the original audience. The original audience is those that are already experiencing the consequences of sin. They're looking back at this as their family history. This is reminding them to, number one, worship the Lord because of what he had done, freed their ancestors in Egypt. But on the other hand, they're being reminded of their corruption. And if they really are in exile, as the scholars would suggest, then they're experiencing quite personally, quite practically, on a daily basis, the the actual climax of that. But what's beautiful here is how the psalm ends. It says, yes, Israel, you have been a disaster, but it doesn't need to finish there. It finishes with what God would do if they would but listen, if they would hear his voice. And within this is an implied invitation to them, is there not? With honey from the rock, I would satisfy you. 
This is an invitation to them. It says, yes, you have messed up. But he doesn't say you've messed up and that's it. There is no hope for you. I'm done with you. I've cast you off. What it says is, yes, you have messed up, but I want you. And there is still time to repent. There is still time for restoration. Psalm 81 is pretty brutally honest. And I think it, it should cause us to kind of reflect on our own walk and journey with the Lord. And what it does here is it sets the Lord's people and the text up at a crossroads. Knowing that God has been faithful, that's not the thing that's in question. The question that the text poses for them is, will they be a faithful people now? They know their history, the ups and the downs. What are they going to do in the present? How do we relate to this? How do we reflect on this this morning? I'm going to give us three things that I think that we can take away as the Lord's people. Number one, the first thing that we need to see is that worship and praise are not optional activities. Worship and praise are not optional activities. They are not actually dependent upon how we feel in the moment. When we look at Psalm 81, it says that they are to sing aloud, they are to raise a song, they are to blow the trumpet. These are commands. They are commanded to praise despite the difficulty of the psalm. And this seems to imply that praise and worship are not primarily, they're not less than, but they are more than emotional activities. There are expressions where we come into this confrontation with a holy God and we submit to him and we acknowledge his place and our place, where we acknowledge creator and creation, where we acknowledge those in need and the one who is the redeemer. Psalm 81 isn't at a place where the Israelites uh, hear their story and they blame God. Psalm 81 is a, a, a text that calls us to uh, ownership, calls us to take responsibility for where we stand and where the Lord stands. He has revealed himself in Sinai and most fully in Jesus. And that in and of itself is an act of grace. Because if the Lord is revealing himself, then there is still an opportunity to change. If the Lord has not given us over and he is convicting us, then that is the Spirit's work calling us to repentance. What we find is that worship is formative. What that means is that when we do it, as God's people, it makes us into the people the Lord desires us to be. It's not just for our edification. It's for our sanctification. It's how the Spirit begins to set us apart as holy. It's one of the ways that the Spirit works. Worship is not something we just do for worship's sake. Worship is something that we do for the good of God's people and because there is one who is worthy of being worshiped. The second thing that we find is that we need not be defined by our past, whether that be our family history or our personal history. We all have unique stories. I have my own dark ages. Maybe you have yours. Maybe you have your joys and maybe you have your challenges and maybe you're in a season right now that is full of one more than the other. Sometimes our challenges that we face are our own doing. Sometimes the ones that we go through are outside of our control. Maybe you have guilt or shame or pain or whatever you're going through. This is what Psalm 81 tells us, that God's heart is still for you even in the midst of that. 
that your life still has purpose, that you're still invited to this table this morning because of what Jesus has done. The final thing we see is that God desires to both rescue and bless you abundantly. I think we need to be cautious and thoughtful and wise about the way that we think about blessing because it is not always blessing in tangible means. But nonetheless, we believe that the Lord desires to bless us. We believe that he is a generous God. One of the things that happens, I I believe, is that we undergo experiences that are maybe less than ideal. Or maybe we, we listen too much to the voices of our cultural moment and they end up shaping our views of God. And we begin to respond to God as if he were maybe a genie, right? Where he's only there when we need him to be there. That I'll call on him and he will grant my wishes. Sometimes we respond to him as if he's kind of this cosmic vending machine. That if I do X, Y, and Z, if I do all of these things, then this is surely the result that I will get. If you think that's true, go read Job. Well, you'll think otherwise by the time you're done with it. Sometimes we think of him as a drill sergeant, right? That he's always watching for us to act in perfection. And when we don't act in perfection, he's going to blow the whistle and he's going to call us out and we are going to suffer the consequences of it. Sometimes we treat the Lord like he's somebody that we know, maybe a friend or maybe a father. And we view him through the lens of our experiences with those other people. But what we find is that the Lord is not like any of those things, that he is compassionate that he is gracious, that his heart longs for us to know him, and there is mercy that is overflowing. There is mercy that never ends. You cannot out-sin God. You cannot do enough foolish things where there is not grace for you. And what I want us to see is God's love all throughout this psalm. And as we come to the table, the heart of this text points us so clearly to God's love expressed in Jesus. Because the hope of Psalm 81 is that we would be a faithful people, that we would look to God as our all and all. This is not true for only Israel, but for us as well. And yet what we find in Israel's life and in our life is this vicious cycle, this back and forth where the Lord desires us, the Lord pursues us, and there's something in us that likes to naturally reject him that likes to push back on what he has done. There's something deep-seated within us, this kind of battle that we cannot break free of. And if you know yourself well enough, what you realize is that we're in bondage to this fact that faithfulness to God is not something that we can muster up in our own strength. We might have faithful moments, that's true. We might have good moments, absolutely. But that's a totally different thing than a life that is characterized by faithfulness, than a life that is characterized by righteousness. The problem in the text of Israel's unfaithfulness is not just their issue. It is also our problem as well. And yet what we find is that in, God, in Christ, God chose to be faithful for us, that he took on flesh, born into a broken family line, Read the book of Matthew and spend some time sorting through all of those names in the genealogy. Sometimes in our, in our world, in our circles, we like to read over those genealogies, right? As if they, they don't have as much weight. But when you realize that this is the family that the Lord was born into and he was living the life he lived, not just for them, but for us, 
it takes on a whole new level of meaning. And we find that Jesus went to the cross after living a perfect life for us. And when he is crucified, he is the one who is labeled by the high priest as the blasphemer. He is the one who is labeled unfaithful. And what we find is the reality is that he was the sinless one who was dying for us, the ones who are so often faithless. And three days later, he rises from the dead. He conquers sin and death, and he invites us now into a life of faithfulness. He invites us to forsake this illusion that abundance can be found outside of him, that there are other things that can satisfy us as much as intimacy with him can. That's what we need to glean from Psalm 81, this pattern of invitation, this pattern of remembrance and repentance. I want us to remember what God has done in Jesus. Remember the life that he lived. Seek to embody the life that he lived in the power of the spirit. Remember what he went through so that in our moments of failure, we can recognize that there is grace because he was hung on a tree for us. I want us to call, I want to be called to invitation. Maybe for you it's the first time, maybe for you it's the hundredth time, recognizing that there is mercy in abundance in Jesus, that you are always, if you are following Jesus, if you've trusted in him, you're always invited to this table that your walk with God is not dependent on your own faithfulness, but Jesus' faithfulness in your place. But that starts with our repentance. It starts with our humility and saying, God, I know I'm not always faithful. I know that I'm broken. I know that our world is broken, and I need you to intervene. I need you to do something. At the Exodus event, the Lord redeemed his people. He set them free. He purchased them out of slavery and called them into relationship with himself. The same is true in Jesus, but in fuller measure, right? He has redeemed us and he has set us free from sin and he has called us into relationship through faith and repentance to himself. And now the invitation is not just to believe, but to act in accordance with that, to follow him to step into the abundant life he has for us. My question for us this morning before we pray is this. Do we believe what God says in verse 10? That he is the one who sets us free. And do we believe this promise? Open your mouth wide and I will fill it. Jesus said he came to bring life in abundance. Do we believe that? Do we believe that we need to stand here with open hands and let him just fill those hands with whatever he wants? Do we believe that his grace is enough? I want to let us just stew on that for a moment here, and I'll pray for us. And uh, whenever you're ready, you can come to the table remembering what Jesus did to call us into covenant relationship with himself through faith. Let me pray. Father, thank you that despite our brokenness, brokenness, you did not leave us to ourselves, but you are a God who redeems and sets free, as we see in this psalm. Lord, help us to live as free people, those who have been set free by your spirit. I pray for those here that are wrestling with sin. I pray that you would, in a, a unique and a gracious way, step in, that you would comfort them, that your mercy is enough in the midst of the battle. Because the reality, Lord, is that we are all wrestling with something. 
We're all wrestling with sin and the brokenness of this world. But Jesus, you say to take heart because you have overcome the world. Lord, help us to believe that and cling to you, that we might experience the abundant life that you have for us. It may not always be pretty. It may not always be comfortable, Lord, but I I ask that you would help us to open our hands and accept whatever it is that you have for us so that you would be glorified as the one who is supreme and so that we might experience the, the good life, the fullness that you promise. Lord, I pray a special blessing as us as we come, uh, come to the table, that we would be moved by what Jesus has done, that we would feel the weight and the burden of that, and we would be drawn back to you in repentance, whether for the first time or for the, the nth time. Lord, bring us before you. Have your way among us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.